Ecclesiastes chapter one, beginning in verse four. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north and wind the wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come there. They return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. In our introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, we were introduced to Solomon, David's son. He was born with a gold crown on his head and a silver spoon in his mouth. In terms of environment, he grew up in Jerusalem. In terms of education, he had the best that money could buy. And the mission of the author was to ask and answer the question about the meaning and the significance, the purpose of life. And the qualifications of the author are scattered throughout the book. Wisdom allows a careful study, wealth, unlimited access to resources. And so the study begins with a declaration that everything is meaningless, a difficult conclusion when what you're trying to do is discover the search for meaning, unlimited wealth, unlimited wives. If you want to call 400 wives and 600 concubines unlimited, I'm thinking a thousand women are going to give you a pretty good sampling. All the world is before him. He's going to present the arguments of life under the sun or from a human perspective. And Solomon has lived some of his life in disappointment. And he has lived some of his life in disillusionment. He's conscious of the fact at this ancient age in which he's growing, that he has a fool for a son and he's lost the love of the people of Israel. And Solomon himself has sown the seeds of division into the decay of the kingdom that was left to him by his father, David. And in spite of a godly father, in spite of a rich national heritage, in spite of a personal knowledge of God and God's word. He's failed miserably. And the mission to ask and answer the question is compounded by the fact that the author quickly concludes that there's no real purpose in verses two through seven. 
that life is futile and meaningless. There's no new thing, he says in verses 9 and 10. History merely repeats itself in monotonous cycles, never-ending repetitions. Whatever illness has befallen humanity, there doesn't seem to be any cure in sight for the problem that human beings face, he writes in verse 15. There's no lasting honor, he says in verse 11. And the reason why he points out that there's no lasting honor, he says that the dead are quickly forgotten. And the atheist affirms that there is no God and the agnostic asserts that there may or may not be a God. We can't know for sure, but the agnostic winds up for all intents and purposes of looking for an explanation apart from the supernatural revelation of a true and personal God. The humanist manifesto number two boldly asserts no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And that's the problem all around you. Because there are going to be people who are going to suggest to you that the God of the Bible isn't real and the Savior that's listed in the Bible isn't really the true Savior. And the problem was never sin to begin with. And whatever problems we have, if we're going to solve those problems, we're going to have to solve them ourselves. The atheist denies God. The agnostic ignores God. And for all intents and purposes... Solomon will present proofs from the perspective of a person who, for whatever reason, for a moment, wants to answer life's questions without seeing the hand of God. You don't know how many times people ask me on the radio, prove to me that Jesus is real, but don't quote the Bible. As if the Bible in and of itself is automatically by default eliminated from a source of credible information. Think of the scientist. Think of the inquirer who looks at astronomy or cosmology or biology or geology from the position of humanistic naturalism who immediately on the face of it denies that there's a sovereign God who designed and created the heavens and the earth. And if you deny the reality of God and if you deny the revelation of God, then of course it seems random and pointless and useless and purposeless. The searcher's thoughts drift towards the course of life in verse 4, the circle of the sun in verse 5, the circuit of the wind in verse 6, the cycle of the water in verse 7. Solomon will move from the proposition that everything is futile in verse in, in verses 1 through 3 to nothing is fulfilling in verse 8. To nothing is fresh in verses 9 through 11. And Solomon is the original Renaissance man. Way before the Renaissance, Solomon was a strange mixture of sovereign and scientist, skeptic, philosopher. And so he begins with the course of life in verse four. Look what it says. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The New Living Translation translates this 
Generations come. Generations go. But nothing really changes. Now, you have to understand something. Solomon was aware of his father's writings. Clearly, Solomon, as a young man growing up, would have read Psalm 39, verse 5 and verse 11, when his father wrote, Behold, thou hast made my days as at hand breath. Mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, selah, or rest. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely man is vanity. Selah, or rest and stop and think about it. And Solomon thought, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think about what my dad said. Life is short. Life is empty. When God corrects us, if he makes us anything, our hair, which started off black, turns white. You know, some of us are turning loose. Some of us are turning gray. My wife's father died this year. And in order to settle his estate, she needed her father's birth certificate and her mother's birth certificate. And she read the names of her grandparents, their names and ages. Her, my wife's mother was the last birth. She was the tenth child. And eight of those children were living. Her father was his her father was 40 years old. Her mother was 36 years old when her mother was born. As you can imagine, generations come, generations go. When I was growing up, (laughs) we had a thing. You young people, you'll probably never see one in your life. It was called a newspaper. And in newspapers, we had things called birth announcements and wedding announcements. It was possible on a newspaper that you could look on the left and you could see who was born and who was getting um, married. And you could see who died on just two pages. Rabbi Harold Kushner tells of a man who came in for counseling and he wrote, quote, Two weeks ago, said the man, for the first time in my life, I went to a funeral of a man my own age. I didn't know him very well. We worked together, talked to each other from time to time. We had kids about the same age. He died suddenly over the weekend. It could just as easily have been me. That was two weeks ago. They had already replaced him in the office. I hear his wife is moving out of state to live with her parents. Two weeks ago, he was working 50 feet away from me, and now it's as if he never existed. It's like a rock falling into a pool of water, and then the water is the same as it was before, but the rock isn't there anymore. Rabbi, I've hardly slept at all since then. I can't stop thinking that it could have been me. And a few days later, I will be forgotten. As if, as if I'd never lived. And then he asked the rabbi, shouldn't a man's life be more than that? He's going to visit the question over and over 
And the sneaking suspicion is going to creep inside of his heart that maybe nothing's changed and nothing's different. Corrie Ten Boom was a survivor of a German death camp, and her father was a watchmaker, and he was and, and she was the first woman in Holland officially licensed to follow the same trade. She tells the Dutch parable of the clock that had just been made, that was put on the shelf between two old clocks. One of the old clocks said to the newcomer, so you've just started out in life. I'm sorry for you. If you'll just think ahead and see how many ticks it takes to tick through one year, you'll never make it. It would have been better had the maker never wound you up and set you on your pendulum. So the new clock began to count up the ticks. Each second requires two ticks, which means 120 ticks per minute, he calculated. That's 7,000 ticks per hour or 172,800 ticks per day. 1,209,600 ticks per week for 52 weeks, which makes a total of 62,899,200 ticks per year. Horrors! The clock immediately had a nervous breakdown and stopped ticking. But the wise old clock on the other side said, pay no attention to him. Just think, how many ticks do you have to tick at a time? Why? Only one, I guess. The new clock answered, there now. That's not so hard, is it? Try it along with me. Just one tick at a time. Seventy-five years later, the clock was still ticking perfectly. One tick at a time. Similarly, no man sinks under the burden of the day. The Bible says sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. It's only when yesterday's guilt is added to tomorrow's anxiety that our legs buckle and our back breaks. And this is why Jesus said, you have today. Live for today. Understand that today, sufficient to the day, is the evil thereof. Each and every day gives you an opportunity to love and trust and serve the Lord. Look what it says in verse 5, the circle of the sun. He says, the sun also rises. The sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it arose. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Solomon understood that the earth revolved around the sun? And that the sun itself drug the planets of our solar system through the galaxy called the Milky Way? I'm going to suggest to you that the Bible seems to contain a great deal of evidence that these ancient writers knew way more about the cosmology and the circumstances of astronomy and the movement of the stars than you might guess. If the sun really cranks up so much energy, why is it that we feel so lazy sitting out in the sun? The point that the preacher makes is that the sun goes up, the sun goes down. The point that the preacher is making isn't an astronomical point. It is the point of the endless circles and cycles of life. The beginning looks a lot like the middle and the middle looks a lot like the end and the end looks a lot like the beginning. That's the point that he's making. 
The psychologist William Moulton Marston asked 3,000 individuals, what have you to live for? And the answer shocked him. 94% weren't living at all. They were enduring the present while waiting for something to happen in the future. They were waiting for something to happen. Their responses to Hey, what have you to live for? I'm waiting till my children grow up and leave. I'm waiting until my job ends. I'm waiting so that I can retire. I'm waiting for next year when things will be better. I'm waiting for something to be different. I'm waiting for the chance to take a trip. I'm waiting for tomorrow. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for life. Life had deteriorated to a cycle with little or no meaning in and of itself. The agnostic and the skeptic and the atheist sometimes feel that they're living in a universe where everything has gone wrong. The atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic might say, well, how is it that the universe itself which is supposed to be 14 billion years old, our solar system and sun, which is supposed to be 4.5 billion years old. But yet here we have this universe that seemingly had a beginning and we now understand that it will have an end and that the sun has a beginning and the sun has an end. Why is it that I am living in a temporary universe, but I have the sneaking suspicion That I'm going to live forever. Solomon won't reveal this insight, by the way, until he gets to chapter three. Remember when he writes that God has placed eternity inside of our hearts. Everything seems so temporary. Then why do you have this sense inside of you? That you were created to live forever. That you were created to be Someone, somewhere, forever. But when you live under the sun, when your perspective is that you live on a planet that circles around a sun and that sun circles around the Milky Way and that Milky Way circles around the center of a universe that we have yet to be able to determine. When you look At the perspective that there is no God or gods, that there's no such thing as permanence, you stifle the intuition that God has placed eternity inside of your heart. Can the truth be found from the perspective under the sun or just a little bit beyond the sun? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, If then you were raised with Jesus Christ, seek those things which are above, not the things that are on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. The Bible invites you and the person of Jesus invites you and the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus invites you to consider the reality that God did, in fact, make you and that you were created to live forever. 
The preacher goes from the circle of the sun to the circuit of the winds. Look what it says in verse six. The wind goes toward the south. It turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Now, I want you to understand something that Solomon anticipates what we now know as climatology or meteorology or the global circulation of the atmosphere. I'm going to suggest something else to you that Solomon must have been very curious about the wind. You don't see it. It's invisible, isn't it? It's invisible, but you know it's there because you can feel the circumstances of its presence. You experience the evidence of something unseen and invisible, but you feel it. As a matter of fact, I want you to imagine just for a moment, Solomon is on the roof of his massive palace and he sees the clouds roll in and he feels the wind blowing against his face. By the way, Solomon refers to the wind in the Song of Solomon. And six times he writes about the wind in the book of Proverbs. Fourteen times in the book of Ecclesiastes, he will write about the subject of wind. I think he's curious about wind. Because there's something inside of him that wants to know why things are the way that they are and why they work the way that they work. And Solomon will use the picture of the wind as a type or a symbol of despair and the brevity of life. Margaret Mitchell wrote a book called Gone with the Wind. Some of you are old enough to remember There was a movie called Gone with the Wind. It came out in 1939. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture up against, of all things, The Wizard of Oz. When she wrote the book, she makes the point that sooner or later, everything in life, our most cherished friendships, our relationships, our possessions, they disappear. They vanish like the wind. When I was growing up and in school in the 70s, there was a very famous song, Dust in the Wind. You know it. All they are is dust in the wind, same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. (laughs) In Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, he's catapulted back in space. He finds himself on the top of Mars Hill and he's talking with Socrates and Plato and they're seeking and searching his mind for significance. And he goes, dude, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. And they all look at him and go, hmm, hmm. As, he's, as if he's the very first person ever to say this. He goes to the cycle of water in verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea. Yet the sea is not full. 
to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. So he talks about the cycle of the sun and the circle. And the circuit of the wind and the cycle of the water. He's illustrating the cycle of the wind, the cycle of the water. How in the world does Solomon know that all the rivers run into the sea? This is something that even amazes modern day scientists. Because people wonder, well, you know, the Bible isn't true in everything that it says. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible is true in everything that it says. When it addresses issues that we can look at and observe, guess what? It speaks fully and faithfully. How did he know this? I'm going to suggest to you that God gave him a supernatural ability to make inquiry into the way that things really are. By the way, experts disagree about the amount of water available on the planet Earth. I've read that some suggest 93% to 97% of all of the water on the planet Earth is locked in the oceans. About 0.0001% is in the atmosphere available for rain. Now you might think 0.001% isn't a whole lot of moisture, but guess what? It's enough to cause it to rain for 10 days straight on the planet Earth, everywhere on the planet Earth. Sun, wind, rain, it makes up what we call the hydrologic cycle. I learned about this in the eighth grade. I suspect you did as well. The water molecule is very simple. It's two hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom, giving water the ability to exist in solid, liquid and gas forms. The cycle takes place in what's called the hydrosphere, which is the place both on the surface of the earth and the atmosphere of the earth. The process is simple. Every earth eighth grade science kid knows this. That condensation, infiltration, runoff, evaporation, precipitation. The process begins with condensation. When water vapor condenses in the atmosphere, you know that it forms clouds. Condensation occurs when the temperature of the earth or the air changes. Water changes when the temperatures fluctuate. When the air cools enough, water vapor has to condense onto particles, dust particles in the air, to form clouds. The process is very noticeable. In the morning, when you wake up, you see dew in the morning. As the clouds form, as winds move across the globe, spreading out the water vapor, when eventually the clouds can't hold the moisture, they release it in the form of precipitation. We call that snow. We call it rain. We call it hail. And the next three stages, infiltration, runoff, and evaporation occur simultaneously. Infiltration occurs when precipitation seeps into the ground. This depends on the permeability of the ground. The more permeable the ground, the, precip the precipitation seeps into the ground. If precipitation occurs faster than it can infiltrate into the ground, it's called a flood. 
It becomes runoff and runoff remains on the surface. It flows into streams. It flows into rivers and eventually into large bodies of water, lakes and oceans. What every eighth grader now knows Solomon knew 1000 B.C. Does that shock you or surprise you? It shouldn't. As both of the processes are happening, the power of the sun is driving the processes. Evaporation is the change of liquid water to vapor. Sunlight aids the process. It raises the temperatures of liquid water in oceans and lakes. As the liquid heats, the molecules are released. It's changed into gas. Warm air rises up the atmosphere. It becomes vapor and then it becomes condensation again. Think for a moment of how little of life's water on the earth is actually available and drinkable for human beings. But the supply survives. And the hydrologic cycle continues to move water and it keeps it fresh. It's estimated that a hundred million billion gallons are cycled in this process every day. Solomon looks at it and says, what a drag. I look at this and go, aren't you glad Because without water, you wouldn't survive. Solomon is using the illustration as a picture of the endless, monotonous cycle of life apart from God. How different is that when you look at as not the monotonous, endless cycle of life apart from God, but the amazing divine design of a God who created a mechanism for you to live in and survive in and work in so that you could experience friendship and fellowship with God. In verses one through seven, Solomon paints a picture of a futile world. And now in verses 8 through 11, he's going to picture life in a frustrating world. Look at what it says in verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear isn't, is filled, nor the ear filled with hearing. When Solomon writes, all things are full of labor. He said, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that the mechanism of life is such that we all seem to have to work and we have to work and we have to work. My father. My father was born in Sicily. And at the age of 18, he got a letter from the Italian government that said, you are an Italian citizen. and You got to come home now and join in the army. And my father said, I can't do that. That's crazy. And so in order to avoid joining the Italian army, he joined the United States National Guard. When he was going through boot camp, he said that one of the things that he was ordered to do was to dig a hole. In the morning, he had to dig the hole. And in the afternoon, he had to fill the hole up. What's this? This makes no sense. Do you ever feel that way? 
that your life is like, okay, here's what you do in the morning of your life. You dig a hole and then you spend the last part of your life filling in the hole. I'm old enough now. You spend the first part of your life getting stuff and then you spend the last part of your life getting rid of it. What is the point? What is the what is the what is the point of this seemingly useless exercise? My dad never figured it out. But his commanding officer knew exactly what he was doing. The commanding officer wanted to know what my father's threshold was. At what point would my father say, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to kill you instead. (laughs) Hey, when you're in the army. You need to know what the threshold is, where the frustration level comes to the end. And that's part of the point. Solomon recognizes. Let me ask you something. Do you have to be a genius? Do you have to be the wisest person who ever lived to come to the conclusion that we live in a world of angry and frustrated people? There was a very famous French writer named Montaigne who wrote, life is a tender thing and is easily molested. There is always something that goes wrong or amiss. Vain vexations, vain sometimes, but always vexations. The smallest and slightest impediments are the most piercing. And as little letters tire the eyes, so do the little affairs of life that most disturb us. It's not the big giant catastrophes that make us so frustrated. It's living in those little inconsistencies and frustrations. Solomon suggests nothing is fulfilling. Here's what Solomon is saying. Everything is boring. Here's what Solomon is saying. You thought your teenager made it up. I've seen it before. I've heard it before. One translation of this verse says, Everything's boring. Utterly boring. No one can find meaning in it. Boring to the eye. Boring to the ear. And by the way, boring is the ultimate put down in our society, isn't it? If you rate a movie and you call it boring. If you read a book and it's boring. If you go to a Bible study and it's boring. That's the kiss of death. That's the kiss of death. We can never hear enough. We can never see enough. Because the human heart has a permanent sense of dissatisfaction. Our whole entertainment culture is predicated on the premise that there is one more movie that you have to watch. There's one more game that you have to play. We will watch more games. Baseball in the summer, football in the fall, basketball and hockey in the winter. Where do you go to find meaning in life? The stadium! Don't get me wrong. I love to go to a baseball game. I know it's crazy. I love to watch baseball. I love to watch football. But guess what? For some people, watching a game is way more than just watching a game. It's their life. 
It's the meaning in their life. In 1958, American writer Barnaby Conrad was badly gored in a bullfight in Spain. And I, I saw in the news about Eva Gabor. Some of you remember her sister, Zsa Gabor. They were from Hungary. And Eva Gabor and Noel Coward were overheard talking about the incident in a New York restaurant. Noel, darling, Eva said, have you heard some news about poor Barnaby? He was terribly gored in Spain. He was what? Coward said in alarm. He was gored. Thank heavens, the writer said. I thought you said he was bored. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? You could be bored. Ask your daughter, ask your son. I can't be, I can't be bored, I can't be bored. We are a culture that's afflicted with a malaise of boredom. The most bored people in life aren't the underprivileged, but the overprivileged. Billy Graham said, America is to have the highest per capita boredom on any spot on earth. We know that because we have the greatest number of artificial amusements of any country. People have become so empty that they can't even entertain themselves. They have to pay other people to amuse them, to make them laugh, to make them feel warm, to make them feel happy, to make them feel comfortable for just a few minutes so that they can lose that awful, frightening, hollow feeling, that terrible, dreaded feeling. Being lost, being alone. Solomon knew about it. And in verse nine, he says that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon writes that nothing is fulfilling. And then he writes, nothing is fresh. Nothing is fulfilling Nothing is fresh. What was will be again. What happened will happen again. Nothing is new on the planet. Year after year, it's the same thing. Doesn't anyone ever call out, hey, hey, this is new. Solomon says, don't get excited. It's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday. Nobody's going to remember what's going to happen tomorrow. It all sounds very, very skeptical, doesn't it? Obviously, Solomon never had an iPad. It's magical. There's never been anything like it where you touch stuff and it comes to life. In his book, Unlocking the Mysteries of Creation, it says, or a closer look at the evidence, it says, quote, The Bible says man was created in the image of God. He was made from the start as a creative, intelligent and rational being. Evolutionists believe that either random chance mutations turned a primitive ape-like creature into a man, or if they're theists, that God used random chance mutations to change some sort of ape-like creature into a man. What does archaeology tell us? Consider just a few examples. 
Number one, Mayans used advanced math to calculate the exact length of a year to within 99.98% of the modern value. Number two, relics from ancient Egypt dating back to around 2500 B.C. or 1500 years before Solomon were found electroplated. Number three, Chinese weapons dating back over 2000 years were treated with a preservative that prevented corrosion. Number four, travel between continents took place thousands of years ago. Ancient maps and some stone monuments inscribed with ancient languages attest to this. Number five, on the remote and barren Easter Island, 2,300 miles off the coast of Chile, there are massive 180,000 pound sculptors of human heads smoothly carved from rock, iron, hard, volcanic ash. These and many other archaeological discoveries indicate that ancient man had a keen understanding of astronomy and math and engineering. We have evidence of medicine, surgery, the use of electricity indicates that human beings were intelligent right from the start. The deist believes God made the universe. The deist believes that he wound it up like a clock and then he walked away to just let it run forever. Rodyard Kipling wrote, the craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new. John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1652. What's old is new. What's new is old. Is Solomon saying that there's never such a thing as a new invention? No. You know what he is saying? That whatever is invented, whatever comes on the scene, whatever is created to try and fill the emptiness that's inside of you, it never quite makes it. In verses 10 and 11, it says, is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. Yeah, my iPad. It's already been in ancient times before us. Is that what he's talking about? Invention? No. He's talking about an invention that will lead to a mental, spiritual, and moral satisfaction. That's what he's talking about. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after What seemed to be satisfying in the past doesn't seem to be satisfying in the present. Some of you are old enough to remember that the most amazing thing was to follow an ice cream truck down the street and wait for the man to throw ice out of his truck and cool yourself off in those hot summer days. How is it possible that something so ordinary could be so fulfilling? Howard Mumma was a Methodist pastor and a preacher who spent a series of summers preaching at the American church in Paris. And one Sunday after the service, he noticed a small crowd of people who had gathered around a man in a dark suit. The man's name was Albert Camus. He was the famous existentialist who started coming to church because he loved to hear the organ music. 
And Camus had wrote several novels, The Plague and The Stranger and The Myth of Sisyphus. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957. And in my college class, it was required reading. We all had to read Camus. Muma and Camus became friends, even though a great gulf separated them in their beliefs. And Muma kept the content of the conversations quiet for 40 years. But Albert Camus passed away in 1960 and Muma, at the age of 92, went on record about their conversation. Camus told him, quote, the reason I've been coming to church is because I'm seeking. I'm almost on a pilgrimage. Seeking something to fill the void that I am experiencing and that no one else knows about. Certainly the public and the readers of my novels, while they see that void, we are not finding the answers in what they are reading. But deep down, you are right. I am searching for something that the world is not giving me. In a sense, we are all products of a mundane world, a world without spirit, the world in which we live and the lives which we live are decidedly empty since I've been coming to church I've been thinking a great deal about the idea of a transcendent something 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 other than this world one of the basic teachings that I learned from French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre is that man is alone we are solitary centers of the universe. Perhaps we ourselves are the only ones who have ever asked the great questions of life. Pause. True or false? It is false. Three thousand years earlier, Solomon was asking the same great questions of life. Camus writes, or Perhaps since Nazism, we are also the ones who have loved and lost and who are therefore fearful of life. I certainly don't have it. But there it is. On Sunday mornings, I hear that the answer is God. You made it clear to me, Howard, that we are not the only ones in the world there's something invisible. We may not hear the voice, but there is some way in which we can become aware that we are not the only ones in the world. But Albert Camus never talked about turning from his sin. He never talked about turning from his unbelief. He never talked about embracing the truth. And in 1960, he committed suicide. Blaise Pascal, another French philosopher who lived centuries earlier, was also disillusioned and he was also in despair and he didn't find answers in pleasure or society. But one day he picked up his Bible. And he read John chapter 17, verse three. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
And instantly his soul took wing. He was in the permanent embrace of Jesus. He took a pen. He wrote on a piece of parchment these words, quote, In the year of grace, 1654, on Monday, the 23rd of November, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. By the way, Pascal spent the rest of his life loving, defending, proclaiming the greatness of God. By the way, it was Pascal who invented the personal computer. He's considered by many the greatest mathematician who ever lived. That scrap of paper was found after his death, sewed into the lining of his coat so that it would be ever next to his heart. It was the same Pascal who wrote, there is a God shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being that cannot be filled by any created thing, but by God alone who can be made known Through the person of Jesus Christ. How do you go from empty. To full. How do you go from dark. To light. How do you go from no meaning. To meaning. It's going to find the ultimate expression in Solomon's future famous relative Jesus Christ that my friends is the beginning of Ecclesiastes there's going to be 11 more chapters for us to explore let's pray Heavenly Father Lord I pray for that person I pray for that person who believes that they're the very first person who's ever asked the question Does my life matter? Does my life have meaning? Does my life have hope? Does my life matter? And Heavenly Father, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would quicken inside of the heart of that person. Not just the suggestion that there's something invisible, that there's something eternal. That there's something immortal. But that invisible, eternal, and immortal being is the Lord God himself who desperately desires friendship and relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, I pray that you would knock on the door of their heart. That, Lord, that they would hear the invitation. That, Lord, they would be willing to turn from their sin and that they would be willing to turn from their unbelief because both are necessary. Anyone can change for a moment, for a day or a week or a month. But a transformation has to take place if we're going to move from unbelief to belief. If we're going to move from faithlessness to faith. Lord, we know that those who 
want to know you. They must believe that you are and that you're a rewarder of those who diligently seek them. So, Lord, I pray that they would open up their heart and their mind. That they would believe the truth about the message of Jesus. About his death and his resurrection and how he's alive and how he can change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.